in the 5th century AD, after the fall of the Roman Empire, pretty much all of Europe was up for grabs. Entire nations of people emigrated to the continent while others fled. This was the time of Viking marauders. Anything was yours if you could take it by force, whether your own or that of an alliance made through any combination of wealth, religion, family, or fear. Various territories formed themselves into kingdoms, states, and republics with names you've never heard because they were soon conquered or allied through some treaty and renamed again and again and again. As political order began to define itself within this chaos, the most successful nations were those with prosperous lands and enough wealth to hire and reward the militaries needed to defend and or acquire the prosperous lands and wealth. Following great victories, warriors who had excelled in battle stood or kneeled to receive knighthood, money, advantageous marriage, property, and serfs, all meted out according to and possibly including a promotion of rank and title. In the peacetime which followed war, however brief and intermittent, knights found themselves with too much free time and not enough people to kill. Whether you're a king or some lesser lord, you don't want your warrior aristocracy sitting around with no reason to keep themselves or their battle skills in shape. Even worse, you don't want them conspiring with each other to find a reason to use those battle skills, possibly against you in a coup d'etat. By the end of the 10th century AD, entering the High Middle Ages, a solution had been found. Miniature pretend wars, called tournaments. And do not be fooled by the word miniature. These pretend wars may not have spanned the lands of entire nations, but like a real war, tournaments were scalable. As the game quickly caught on over the next hundred years, the designated inbounds area of any given tournament could be an enormous size, as large as all the connecting forest and pastures of the wealthiest participating or sponsoring lords. We're talking miles of land. Sometimes it was more like acres, sometimes as small as a field or fenced-in enclosure without even enough room to use horses. No matter the scale, this was different from any earlier combat sport or training exercise. This was medieval warfare with everything but the political grievances and killing. Or at least without as much. Smaller tournaments were often every man for himself, but teams were usually chosen for the larger affairs. And when teams were chosen, it was sometimes arbitrarily but other times according to very real and very serious socio-political divides, with participating knights grouped onto opposing sides of personal feuds or governmental conflict. For example, teams could be split by which of two countries knights were born in, or which country they intended to support in a war everyone knew could start any minute. Perhaps even right here and right now, if someone gets too worked up to remember the part about not killing each other during this game. The idea was to keep tournaments non-lethal, but the idea was also to beat the shit out of each other with blunted swords, and larger tournaments typically began with both sides launching a full cavalry charge at each other, so accidents happened. Accidents could also very easily be made to happen in such an environment, should personal vendetta or political gain provide sufficient motive. Evidence points to the term freelance originating as a noun to describe a knight who was available should any noble house have need of representation in some prestigious tourney. 
should said noble house have need for a certain knight to die in the tourney, well, it was probably a good idea to send in a freelance rather than a knight of the house. Even without contract killing, the very nature of medieval warfare made this an extremely lucrative game for mercenaries. Because in non-tournament war, they did use real weapons to kill people on the other side. But not all people on the other side. Because in the Middle Ages, all men were not born equal. Infantrymen and commoners died by the thousands in war, but if a knight surrendered in battle or you were otherwise able to capture him as a prisoner, the smart thing to do was keep him alive. The closer he sat to a throne by blood or marriage, the more valuable he was as a bargaining chip. If his family happened to be rich, and there's a solid chance they were, a great ransom could also be demanded for this prisoner's release. The awesome thing about tournaments is everyone on the other side was a knight. In fact, it was a rule that everyone had to be a knight. In fact, you could say this was the only rule of a tournament, implying all others with this one simple twist on a familiar concept. It's war, except everyone's a knight. Since knights were meant to be captured and not killed in war, everyone may as well use blunted swords, etc., etc., in war, real or pretend, when a knight surrendered, his captor was owed a ransom of money, weapons, armor, a horse, whatever was deemed valuable enough to grant any given knight's release. The particulars of these and other tournament matters were dictated by ever-evolving customs of warfare and chivalry. Like feudalism itself, chivalry is a concept that has been defined and redefined to a point of mass confusion and near meaninglessness. It began not much at all to ensure men held doors open for women. The original scope of chivalric concerns had much more to do with warfare, as knights were primarily weapons of war. The word chivalry comes from chevalier, the French word for knight, which shares a Latin root with both cavalry and caballero, the Spanish word for gentleman. All of these words implied at least ownership of a horse, if not full knighthood. Cavalier comes from the same place and also meant knight before it became an adjective for men who walk around with their heads up their own asses, which, as you're about to hear, is not a coincidence. Modern misconceptions of chivalry are probably the lasting result of how much fiction in and about this period leans on romantic plot to both rationalize and soften the violent behavior of knights, their typical male protagonists. How to treat a lady of the court as opposed to a commoner was covered by chivalry, sure, but nowhere near as much of a priority as how a knight should conduct himself in pursuit of his military obligations toward God, church, country, honor itself, and various other personal pledges he may have sworn. It's often pointed out how remaining faithful to all these loyalties at once would pose quite a challenge, especially in an era prior to concepts like separation of church and state, a time in which popes selected from noble families assigned important government positions to relatives and formed political alliances with kings, who were believed to rule by divine right. Such great potential for internal conflict is what makes the knight an attractive character to storytellers. 
The very nature of his existence demands sacrificing one loyalty in aggressively violent defense of another, thus revealing his most deeply held convictions. Within a hundred years or so of pretend war between knights becoming a popular form of entertainment to the ruling class, poems, novels, and quote-unquote history books written in the 12th century changed chivalry forever through epic fantasies about legendary characters doing magical things during a golden age of chivalry and wizards that supposedly existed hundreds and hundreds of years before. St. George killing a dragon, King Arthur and his knights relentlessly questing to become ever more pure while searching for the Holy Grail. Because these stories demanded glorious acts of violence from knights, such behavior was provoked and motivated through artificially inflated romance and fantasy. These extremely popular texts became the instruction manuals of chivalry, documents of contemporary ideals projected onto heroes in a distant and magical past. It never mattered whether any of it was real or not. People wanted it to be real, so it came true in the way knights of the 12th century and later were expected to behave at court, on the battlefield, and in tournaments. Men can turn anything into a competition, even and especially trying to act like the heroes of popular stories. This is how chivalry became the overwrought pageantry of a knight attempting to perform the righteous and lion-hearted role society wrote him into because of the books they read. Like an actor at a renaissance fair playing the part of someone who probably never even existed, except, you know, using real swords and killing real people. This new age of chivalry lasted around 500 years until the beginning of the 17th century, when Miguel de Cervantes, a military veteran who'd been wounded in battle, captured and held prisoner of war for nearly five years, comprehensively mocked this culture to death in Don Quixote. Were there knights during the 500-year new age of chivalry who shirked trends and ignored the expectations placed on them by society? Probably. There were certainly knights who never cared about fighting in miniature wars, but knights who did enter tournaments cared about chivalry a lot. Knights entering of their own volition, whether motivated by ego, honor, or whatever else, they'd need to be skilled enough in combat to actually win fights. If they're already doing the hard part, why not lean into the whole chivalry thing and reap the social benefits? Even those with mercenary motives, attracted to the game by money and prizes, would have at least had to pretend because any noble family hiring a knight to represent their house would expect displays of chivalry. So, largely based on 12th century fairy tales about things that never happened a thousand years earlier, Knights entering tournaments began advertising their romantic dispositions, their commitment to chivalry, by wearing a lady's favor. This was some visible token of feminine affection. It could be jewelry, though a more typical favor was a kerchief or similar piece of fabric, sewn and embroidered by a woman or her servant for this explicit purpose, because that's what the women characters did in the fairy tales. In books, the purpose of a lady's favor varied according to plot. Most often, it was merely to help a knight carry memories of his beloved on long journeys and dangerous quests, or to superstitiously provide God with a nominal excuse to give the knight a safe journey home so he could return the favor. Sometimes, the lady's favor was meant as a good luck charm, 
or more commonly, what with the existence of magic in so many of these stories, an enchanted item, granting the knight special powers and or protection. All of these types of favor could be worn under armor to keep them secret and safe. Not so with favors worn in the new age of chivalry, to broadcast a knight fought for the love and honor of a lady, especially as her champion, to settle some dispute or perceived insult. This was the favor of the tournament, and it was to be proudly displayed for all in the audience to see, perhaps even given to the knight in front of the audience, should he request the favor from a lady in attendance upon entering the field of battle. What did she give him? A lock of hair? From her chest? As with most acts of chivalry, the entire point was to be noticed. Otherwise, the knights and the ladies could have kept all this to themselves. About a hundred years after 12th century literature married romance to chivalry, this performative aspect of the culture shifted the main attraction at tournaments from epic battles held across miles of woods and pastures back into town to what before was a side event for only the most skilled warriors considered much too dangerous for young princes and royal heirs to compete. The one rule for this side event was exactly the same. It's war, except everyone's a knight. This war even began with a cavalry charge. The only difference is it was scaled down to one-on-one -on -one combat. The Joust Now, being part of a cavalry charge and being the cavalry charge are different. Your chances of dying go way up when it's just you and one other guy charging at each other on horses, aiming long, sharp sticks at each other as you've each practiced doing thousands of times. And if those aren't high enough stakes for you, keep in mind this whole thing happened right in front of an audience. The larger team and free-for-all battles continued in the fields, and those who wished were able to observe the action from a great distance. However, the details of what happened out there were really only learned after the fact, when all the knights came in and told stories of their accomplishments. The Joust distilled combat to brute simplicity and gave everyone a front row seat to the action. And it was only a little safer than one-on-one -on -one combat in a real war. Should two knights of warring houses meet in the wild, again, they'd both want to spare the life of the other and capture him as a prisoner, if possible. But this could be accomplished by spearing the other knight's leg or killing his horse to take him down to the ground. In front of an audience, such an act would be unchivalrous. The victor of a tournament joust was usually determined by tallying the points each knight received for shattering a lance upon the shield or inbounds armor of his opponent. There were, however, other paths to victory. Directly striking an opponent's chest armor or helmet was likely to knock him off his horse and unconscious, perhaps even killing him, thereby securing a win. Should the unhorsed knight remain conscious and choose to keep fighting, the battle continued on the ground with blunted swords until one knight or the other surrendered by removing his own helmet. Win or lose, all of this happened directly in front of a crowd, who watched everything as it took place. They weren't going to hear about it later. And just like that, a knight no longer needed to tell his own stories because everyone else started telling the story for him. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Co. I've heard these stories my whole life. 
As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. When George Jones won a Grammy Award for He Stopped Loving Her Today, one of the things he said in his very brief acceptance speech was, quote, I just know that we owe so much to the songwriters in the business because they're the ones that made it possible for me to be in this position tonight. In my case, it's Curly Putman and Bobby Braddock from Nashville, Tennessee. Those are two names you'll hear many more times on this podcast because Jones was correct. Just as a song is nothing without a singer, a singer is nothing without a song. Since there are several songwriters to whom it would have been appropriate to give an episode in this season, I ran a series of polls on Patreon for supporters of the podcast to determine which writer it would be. Since such polls are usually won by nothing more than name recognition, it would have been pointless to list any other names next to Bobby Braddock. So I didn't. Instead, I made the candidates anonymous by assigning nicknames derived from their personalities, thereby allowing listeners to vote based on the kind of story they'd like to hear. The choice was between the author, the natural, the earner, and the joker. The author puts me in mind of stereotypes we have about novelists, always feeling and experiencing life a bit more intensely than everyone else, often at the cost of mental and emotional anguish, consistently striving towards some breakthrough or masterpiece or reinvention of self. The author has the whole tortured artist slash cynical romantic thing going full throttle 24-7. While the act of creation tortures some, the natural makes it look as effortless as turning on a light switch. The natural wrote a number one pop song at least five years before deciding to pursue songwriting as a profession. Many legendary artists returned again and again to The Natural for their material and the hits, country and pop, kept coming. Until suddenly quitting the entire business seemed to come as easy as anything else. More than just a hit songwriter, The Earner was a real go-getter. Not the only writer here who branched out to other areas of the recording industry. Not the only writer here to play a significant role in discovering a major recording artist. These plot points are, however, a much larger part of the earner's story due to the degree of success with such endeavors. The Joker's nickname is meant more in the wildcard sense than the deranged Batman villain sense, because the Joker would probably be just as happy to sit down and plot some huge prank as they'd be to write another hit song. And when a liquid lunch or late night with a bottle could turn into yet another number one record, it's pretty easy to justify having a good time. Work hard, play harder. The Joker is Glenn Sutton. The earner is Noro Wilson. The author is Bobby Braddock. You will hear all those names throughout this season and beyond. Today, though, we are here to talk about the natural, Dallas Frazier. We will get into why he quit the music business barely 10 years after he began writing hit country songs, but in stepping away from the spotlight, Dallas didn't leave behind much of a story other than the one told by his body of work. Fortunately for us, that happens to be a fascinating story. Dallas Frazier was born into poverty in Oklahoma in 1939, near the end of the Great Depression. When he was only a few years old, his family moved to California, making them bona fide Okies in the town of Bakersfield, where he grew up. 
Dallas loved to sing, and being a creative child, he began coming up with his own songs just for fun when he was around 10 years old. When he was 12, he won an amateur talent contest hosted by Ferlin Husky at a Bakersfield dance hall. Ferlin was so impressed he offered Dallas a job as a backup singer in his band. Dallas accepted and shortly after, with his parents' permission, moved into Ferlin's house for work. He was only 14 years old when Ken Nelson signed him to an artist contract with Capitol Records, right around the time Dallas got a job singing in the house band of the cousin Herb Henson's Trading Post gang TV show in LA. In 1954, the Trading Post band backed up Dallas on his first record for Capitol, Herb Henson's Space Command. Space Command, Space Command, flying through the atmosphere, the junior Space Command. This intergalactic fantasy didn't do much on the A-side, and as is so often the case, young Dallas's own composition was the B-side of his debut record. The only thing we can do is wonder if Capitol missed the hit. Well, ain't you had no breaking up at all? You're just a shameful disgrace to us all. One time I was at my uncle's was having a great big dinner That's when I was real young and spry I stuffed myself with chicken and I got indigestion That's when the whole darn bunch would shout and cry Well, ain't you had no breaking up at all? Much of the intelligence, humor, and craft he'd carry through his entire career was already in place on this first recording of a Dallas Frazier composition. As a performer, at 14 years old, he was already confident enough to warp the syllables in words, forcing language to serve his own needs years before everyone would fall in love with Roger Miller for doing the very same thing. When his next couple singles were equally ignored, Capitol released Young Dallas from his contract. But he continued working with Ferlin Husky, singing on The Trading Post, and he joined the cast of Cliffy Stone's Hometown Jamboree, appearing on LA television several times a week for several years, and performing alongside the greats of the era, like Tennessee Ernie Ford, Buck Owens, Skeets McDonald, and Johnny Horton. In 1957, when he was about 18 years old, Dallas fell in love with and married a young woman named Sharon. In 1959, a tiny indie label released his next record. Presumably written either prior to meeting Sharon or strictly from imagination, Can't Go On documents Dallas's maturing voice as well as his transition to the R&B sound he would keep for most of his recording career. Can't Go On was not a hit, 
But the next cut of a Dallas Frazier song went number one pop, number 15 pop, and number 59 pop on three different records at the same time. Dallas wrote the song in 1957, the same year he got married. Even working all those sideman gigs at once didn't bring in very much money to his household, so Dallas continued taking field work where he could get it, entertaining himself during the hours of manual labor by coming up with songs to sing. On this day, he was picking cotton and thinking about the comic strip character Alley Oop, V.T. Hamlin's prehistoric caveman from the kingdom of Moo, introduced in 1932 and as of this recording, still in syndication. Dallas worked his way up and down the rows of cotton while singing about Alley Oop's wild man adventures. And the little ditty must have stuck with him because in 1960, Gary S. Paxton of Skip and Flip and later Monster Mash fame got a bunch of studio musician friends to record the song. Everyone on the session, including Dallas on background vocals, was allegedly as drunk as it sounds like they were. He's a mean motor scooter and a bad go-getter. He's the toughest man there is alive. Wears clothes from a wildcat's hide. He's the king of the jungle jive. Look at that king man go. Released under the name The Hollywood Argyles, this record was a phenomenon, one of those novelty hit sensations nobody could have predicted and which still cannot be explained. On its way to number one, it sold over a million copies and spawned several covers, most notably from Dante and the Evergreens whose record only hit number 15 pop in Billboard, but Cashbox tracked it as also coming in at number one. There's a man in the funny papers we all know. He lived way back a long time ago. And the Dinosaurs record going number 59 put three versions of the same Dallas Frazier song in the Hot 100 in 1960. His next single as an artist came out the following year on another little indie label. And his voice sounds great, but there's not much to She Made Me Cry as a composition, and the all-out chaos of the arrangement was perhaps a bit much for record buyers who were still a year or two away from shelling out for the Rivingtons' Papa Oom Mau Mau and the Trashmen's Surfin' Bird. By the end of 1962, Dallas and Sharon were living in Portland, Oregon. The full reasons for the move are unclear, but in a 2012 interview with BronsonsMusic.com, Dallas said he'd, quote, kinda gotten out of the business and all, end quote. 
Since he and Sharon by this time had some kids and his own records weren't selling, it seems likely Dallas decided to take the money he made from Alleyoop and go try to be a responsible parent instead of a rock star. However, he was barely in Portland for a year before Ferlin Husky came through on tour. Dallas went to see his old friend and Ferlin asked what he was doing up there, away from all the action. When Dallas said there wasn't much up there to do, Ferlin talked him into coming to Nashville to write songs for Ferlin's new publishing company. In late 1963, Dallas once more moved into Ferlin Husky's house, this time in Nashville, this time bringing his wife and daughters with him, and this time Ferlin was in the middle of one of his many divorces. So the Frazier family moved into a place of their own within about six months. In addition to the publishing company, Ferlin Husky owned a gas station, where Dallas took a day job while writing songs on the side. Dallas was still working in the gas station when Ferlin Husky recorded the first country hit on one of his songs, Timber I'm Falling, in 1964. On paper, it is a pop song, complete with a baby-maybe rhyme. On record, the strummed banjo and reference to a tree gave Capitol more than enough excuse to ship it to country radio, and it wound up charting at number 13. Not a bad start to Dallas's Nashville career. But Ferlin Husky was then one of the biggest stars in country music, and this was only a few years after his Wings of a Dove spent 10 weeks at number one, nearly breaking into the pop top 10. So Ferlin was on tour all the time, while Dallas was sitting back in Nashville, writing tons of songs that weren't being recorded or worked by a real publishing company. Ferlin understood the situation, and there were no hard feelings when Dallas jumped over to Jim Reeves' Acclaim Music in late 1964. Nothing much happened for Dallas at Acclaim until the summer of 65. Song plugger Ray Baker told Charlie Rich they had a perfect song for Charlie's recording session the next day. When Ray told Dallas how well the meeting went, Dallas asked which song Ray was talking about, and Ray said he figured Dallas would just write one. He did try late into the night, but couldn't come up with anything good, so he set an alarm for 5 a.m., got a couple hours sleep, woke up early in the morning, and wrote Mohair Sam. Charlie Rich cut the song only hours later in his first session for Smash Records, produced by Jerry Kennedy. That's Charlie McCoy on one of the hookiest bass intros of all time. Good 
When Mohair Sam came out as Charlie's first single on Smash, it hit halfway up the Pop Top 40, his first major record since Lonely Weekends five years earlier on Sun. After that, Ray Baker decided to steal Dallas from Jim Reeves and start his own publishing company. They were sitting in a bar one day, drinking beer and thinking up good names for Ray's new pubco when they landed on Blue Crest, the name of an old beer brand from the 1940s. Ray worked with a couple other writers, but according to him, he never had the money to put anyone else on staff. So Blue Crest music was always pretty much just Dallas Frazier. As soon as he founded Bluecrest, Ray dug through the stack of songs Dallas had written for Furlan Husky, with the understanding he would split publishing with Furlan on any unrecorded gems. The song he found has since earned more money than anything else ever written by Dallas Frazier. It was the very first thing he wrote when he came to Nashville. The footsteps referenced at the beginning of There Goes My Everything were inspired by the woman Dallas saw leave Furlan Husky in 1963. I hear footsteps slowly walking as they gently walk across a lonely floor. Decades later, Dallas told the Tennessean he didn't put it in the song, but in real life, those footsteps were taking her toward a yellow cab waiting outside. Darling, this will be goodbye forevermore. Furlan was first to cut the song in late 1965, and it came out the following summer. His record didn't do much, but Jack Green's wife heard it and convinced her husband to cut the song. Less than two years earlier, Jack Green was just Ernest Tubbs' drummer. When his version of There Goes My Everything, produced by Owen Bradley, came out in late 1966, I hear footsteps slowly walking As they gently walk across a lonely floor And a voice is softly saying Darling, this will be goodbye forevermore It became his first major hit, spent seven weeks at number one on the country chart, made it almost halfway up the Pop Hot 100, and created a new genre standard. In 1967, the first year the CMA started handing out awards, they gave There Goes My Everything single and song of the year, the album it was on won album of the year, and Jack Green won artist of the year. By the time all these awards came in at the end of 1967, the song had been covered by country artist Loretta Lynn. And the voice is softly saying Darling, this will be goodbye forevermore Ray Price The Statler Brothers. Oh, there 
Del Reeves, Jim Ed Brown, Red Sovine, Wilma Burgess, Kitty Wells, Jimmy C. Newman, the Wilburn Brothers, Gene Shepard, and Roy Drusky. Again, those are just the covers that came out within one year of Jack Green's record. In the same period, Engelbert Humperdinck's version hit Top 40 Radio. It would take way too long to list everyone who has since recorded There Goes My Everything because it's been cut by over 150 artists. There are hit songs, and then there are hit songs that continue to be recorded years and decades after the original hit. There Goes My Everything is the second kind of hit song, and that's the kind Dallas Frazier kept writing. At any point in his career, as he wrote more and more hit songs, there was no telling when a major artist would resurrect something he'd written years earlier for another huge hit single or placement on a top-selling LP. In 1965, the Beach Boys put Ali Oop on Beach Boys Party. He's the toughest man there is alive. Ali Oop, a West Coast from a Wildcats high. Ali Oop, he's a king of the jungle time. But look at that caveman go! He rides through the jungle, tearing limbs off a tree. Ali Oop, a top 10 LP. In 1967, Tom Jones put Mohair Sam on the Green Green Grass of Home LP, which sold half a million copies. Who is the hippie that's happening all over our town? Tearing up the chicks with a message that a healer's Ferlin Husky got Dallas hooked back up with Capitol Records in 1965. And live in dreams on and on. The David Wilkins song Make Believe You're Here With Me didn't do anything as his first single back, but the title track and lead single of his first Capitol LP made it into the lower half of the Pop Hot 100 in 1966. Hell, Pyra. Hell, Pyra. My Elvira in this song is meant to be a woman, but this was several years before the Vampyra-inspired Mistress of the Dark began introducing horror movies on late-night TV. 
She can sure enough make my little light shine I get funny feelings up and down my spine Cause I know that my Elvira's mine And Dallas Frazier's song wasn't inspired by any real woman. Rather, he wrote it after driving through East Nashville one day and noticing a sign for Elvira Avenue, which he thought was a unique and funky name. Before you know it, he had the beginnings of a song about how his heart was on fire for Elvira. Other singles released from his first Capitol LP weren't as successful. But what with Dallas continuing to write massive hits for other artists, the label kept him around long enough to make a second album. And it's usually pretty interesting to compare Dallas's versions of his own songs to the versions that became hits for other artists. For one thing, he is a phenomenal singer and easily one of the most soulful hummers in the game as heard on his version of Mohair Sam. Who is a hippie that's happening all over our town? Mm, tearing up the chicks with the messes that he laid down. But it's also cool to hear the R&B arrangements he probably had in mind when writing songs which later became hits for country artists. In 1966, Connie Smith took a strings and steel guitar cut on Ain't Had No Lovin' to number two country. In 1967, on his second Capitol LP, Dallas put down a bass and horn-heavy version. You've already heard Melba Montgomery and Gene Pitney do Baby Ain't That Fine in a country fashion. Theirs was the first recording and only hit on the song, but Dallas's joyous, horn-filled R&B take is just as compelling. I get a little bit of jingle up and down my spine My head gets dizzy every time you say your mind 
gonna be singing The bells are gonna chime We're gonna love each other And the sun is gonna shine Baby, ain't that fine Even though he loved country music, it's obvious Dallas came to think of himself as more of an R&B singer. Just listen to his version of Tell It Like It Is from the same album. If you are us Don't play with my heart It makes me furious But if you want me to love you Then baby, I will Girl, you know I will Tell it like it is Don't be ashamed Let your conscience be your guide Near the end of 1966, around the time Jack Green's There Goes My Everything was starting to take off, but before anyone realized how monumental of a hit it would be, Pappy Daly bought a 40% stake in Bluecrest Music. This was after Melba and Gene had the hit with Baby Ain't That Fine, and George Jones had already recorded about 10 Dallas Frazier songs. So it's another instance of Pappy finding a way to get in on the action while allowing his artists to keep doing whatever they want to do, which was record songs written by Dallas Frazier. One of the Dallas songs George Jones cut prior to this deal was the title track of his 1966 LP, I'm a People. It's another one of those post-Roger Miller wacky novelty numbers, which if you haven't put it all the way together yet, Roger Miller is indirectly responsible for a significant percentage of the worst songs coming out of Nashville during the mid-60s. But Dallas Frazier was writing wacky novelty hits before anyone ever heard of Roger Miller, so his entries to the field shone brighter than most. Now five other monkeys are working for a living, I'll be a getting instead of a giving, hanging by my tail. The rhyme scheme of I'm a People also harkens back to the kind of talking blues motifs a young Bob Dylan lifted from Woody Guthrie, here applied to a human being wishing he was a monkey so he wouldn't have to work or otherwise engage in foolish social endeavors. But I spell a piece, a little bit of eat, sweet bop bop bop, so jibby jibby doe, and a little round dough. Now you add another piece, a big skinny L. I'm a People was a top 10 country record in 1966. Perhaps of more enduring quality, the next song on the album was also written by Dallas Frazier. Recorded in June 1965, Johnny Paycheck was still playing bass for the Jones Boys, and it's almost certainly his husky voice in the background of Don't Think I Don't Love You. And I wouldn't even love you if I could So don't think it ain't been fun Cause it ain't Don't think I still can't care Cause I can't 
think my mind won't change Cause it won't Don't think I don't love you Cause I don't it looks like Pappy Daly's deal with Bluecrest went into effect in January of 1967, as there's an exponential increase to the number of Dallas Frazier songs in George Jones' recording sessions just prior to then. His next A-side, written by Dallas, was a non-album single selected from a session of nothing but Frazier compositions. After I Can't Get There From Here went Top 5 Country, Jones' next single was also written by Dallas Frazier. By your side I will stay Till we're old and gray Reminiscing young moments we After If My Heart Had Windows went top 10 country, Jones' next single, recorded in the same session, was also written by Dallas Frazier. Darling, there's talk around town About a girl who spreads love With soft lips and eyes crystal blue Darling, say it's not you And also went top 10 country. Since Say It's Not You and If My Heart Had Windows were two of the 11 Dallas Frazier songs Jones recorded during two sessions in June 1967, it's safe to assume Pappy Daly decided those songs were too good to put on the 1968 LP George Jones Sings the Songs of Dallas Frazier. Aside from Pappy throwing I Can't Get There From Here on the track list as the first song, there were no new singles released from this album, but there is also 0% filler. I can say without hesitation this is my favorite George Jones album from beginning to end. This is Jones right in the sweet spot, both vocally and in terms of late 60s Nashville sound production. There isn't much information available on which A-team musicians worked the sessions, but the pedal steel guitar sounds to me like Lloyd Green, and everything he does is masterful. After opening with its lone hit, the album moves into Lookin' For My Feel Good, which kicks off with a frantic Daddy Long Legs guitar part doubled on two electrics while the piano rolls out a similar riff on the low end. Well, my heart ain't had nothing since you left but the feel bad. When you left, I lost my feel good like you knew I would. Well, when you left me 
sitting here crying like you knew you could. As the second verse starts, one of the guitars gets even more frantic. What with Jones still not finding his feel good. Each night I paint the town until it closes. Cause there's no love that waits for me at home. I life with all my friends to keep from crying. But they all know my feel good's gone. After that, it's time for a sad one. On When Love Was Green, the pedal steel strings get raked back and forth while Jones rakes through his past for memories of better days. Each day I live a page from yesterday When you were mine and skies Within our hearts, each day was filled with spring. But that was long ago when love was green. In hanging on to one and hanging round the other, Jones can't give up on his wife or his mistress which makes for a sticky situation he knows sure isn't going to end well, and the Jordanaires sound like the bar full of friends he'll be hanging out with when the whole thing blows up. I got one I hang around with, and one I love at home. Hanging on to one, and hanging round the other. The one I hang around is more than just a lover. The one I love at home is a good wife and a mother. Hanging on to one and hanging around the other. Half of Me Is Gone is an up-tempo heartbreak song in which Jones paces the floor of his room, never outpacing the pain. I realize the many times I was unfair And darling, hurting you, I know was wrong I hope that you'll forgive me for the fool I was And find it in your heart to come back home I walked up thousand miles last night never left my if the honky-tonk downstairs came out as a single ten years later, after Jones' on-record persona became synonymous with hopeless alcoholism, it would likely have been a major hit. Here, it's a preview of things to come. My wife works all night long For a man that's halfway gone As a barmaid in the honky-tonk downstairs it's a shame she wears the name of a man that's locked in chain to a bottle that's destroyed all hopes and cares. A title like My Baby Left Her Jingling John for Fold and Fred could easily be a swing and a miss on another goofy heartbreak song, 
But Dallas Frazier's big money man versus little money man imagery immediately sells and never gets bogged down in the concept. Well, my baby left her jingle and junk for and Fred. True love never backed up one word that she said. That proves to me that a black bear is green when it's red. My baby left her jingle and junk. A bold and free. My baby told me, honey, you're poor, but I love you. The title of The Girl I Almost Knew looks like another Cowboy Jack rewrite of She Thinks I Still Care. Then you press play and it's a no tricks, no frills, never gonna fix this broken heart excuse for Jones to, as Pig Robbins would put it, moan his ass off. You're the girl. Who almost gave her heart to me You're the girl Who almost made my dreams come true Forever In my mind there'll be a memory Of a stranger The girl I almost knew There is quite a bit of baritone guitar all over this album, but that deep tone is used to most dramatic effect when kicking off There Ain't No Grave Deep Enough. One of those You Left Me But I'd Always Take You Back tracks, Jones turned into hit after hit during these musical years. Even though I know it's over your heart's with someone new There ain't no grave deep enough To bury my love for you There's no way to hide my feelings Or cover up the truth And finally, the album closes on There's Nothing Left For You, showing things have only gotten worse since earlier, when only half of Jones was gone. There's no tears left to cry There's no feeling left inside There's no heart for you to hurt and break into You took all the hope I own Yes, in a way, I'm glad it's gone. Lucky me, there's nothing left for you. After the Dallas Frazier LP came out, Pappy Daly packaged If My Heart Had Windows as the title track of Jones' next album, which also featured Say It's Not You and two more Dallas songs. George Jones recorded somewhere around 50 Dallas Frazier songs in the seven years he was on Musicor, so we won't have time to look at them all. In 1968, Dallas took a little vacation to Florida and came back with Until My Dreams Come True, another number one country song for Jack Green. Until these arms of mine surround you the time I'll keep on dreaming 
Until my dreams come true Until your heart can see What burns inside of me I'll keep on dreaming Until my dreams come true There are few higher compliments a country songwriter could receive than Merle Haggard, one of the genre's greatest singer-songwriters, choosing to record one of your songs. Merle's 1968 album, The Legend of Bonnie and Clyde, featured three Dallas Frazier songs. Love Has a Mind of Its Own, The Train Never Stops, and the Charlie Leuven hit, Will You Visit Me on Sundays. Will you visit me on Sunday? Will you bring me pretty flowers? Will your big blue eyes be misty? Will you brush away a tear? A grave is filled with silence But if a sleeping man could hear Darling, would I hear Your footsteps up there But Dallas's greatest commercial success of 1968 was definitely the son of Hickory Holler's Tramp, which is about exactly what it sounds like it's about, being the forever grateful child of a one-woman red-light district in a backwoods town. This is Dallas's favorite song he ever wrote, and it's one of several great songs like Green Green Grass of Home, With Pen in Hand, Willin', and Why You Been Gone So Long, which country singer Johnny Darrell was first to record, only to watch other artists cut the same song to much greater success. Oh, the path was deep and wide from footsteps leading to our cabin. Above the door there burned the scarlet lamp. And late at night a hand would knock and there would stand a stranger. Yes, I'm the son of Hickory Holler's tramp. Johnny's late 1967 record on the son of Hickory Holler's Tramp did make it about halfway up the country top 40, and this recording of the song was soon followed by Sanford Clark, Merle Haggard, Del Reeves, Nat Stuckey, and Bobby Bear. But it was O.C. Smith's R&B version in 1968 that hit the pop top 40 in the U.S., number 3 in Australia, and number 2 in the U.K. Yeah, the weeds were high, the corn was dry When Daddy took to drinking Him and Sally Walker They up and ran away Then Mama shed a silent tear And promised 14 children I swear In 1944, Louis Jordan's Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby hit number one on Billboard's folk chart. Cause I want her, I'm gonna ask her, Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby? Way you acting lately makes me doubt. Still my baby, baby Seems 
my flame in your heart's done gone out. As did the King Cole trio Straighten Up and Fly Right. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Fly right. And after Billboard came up with the R&B and country and western charts in the late 1940s, there was not another record by a black artist to go number one country until Charlie Pride's All I Have to Offer You Is Me in 1969. Before you take another step, there's something you should know about the years ahead and how they'll be. You'll be living in a world where roses hardly ever grow. Cause all I have to offer you is me. This song was written by Dallas Frazier and Doodle Owens, who was born and raised in Waco, Texas, then came to Nashville, where he soon met and began writing songs with Dallas in the mid-60s. His first notable co-write with Dallas was Johnny One Time, a warning about the Love Em and Leave Em title character, recorded and released as a single by Willie Nelson in 1968. So he told you that you're the dream that he's been searching for told you that he's never met anyone like you before and i can hear him telling you your lips taste just like sherry wine but did he tell you that he's known as johnny one time willie's record was a minor country hit leading to several great covers of Johnny One Time from Brenda Lee. So he told you that you're the dream that he's been searching for. And he told you that he'd never met anyone like you before. Loretta Lynn. And I can hear him telling you your lips taste just like Everyone. But did he tell you that he's known as Johnny One Time? Melba Montgomery. Did he tell you that your heart will soon become another trinket on his bracelet of broken hearts? Did he tell you that the morning sun will find you patching up your shattered pride and searching for the missing parts? In January and February 1969, Elvis Presley recorded two Fraser Owens songs for the From Elvis in Memphis LP, regarded by many fans as his return to serious musical output after years of mostly releasing soundtrack albums for his awful movies. I had to leave town for 
If Elvis sounds like he had a cold on album opener wearing that loved on look, it's because he did. The other Fraser Owens song, True Love Travels on a Gravel Road, came pretty deep into side two of the LP. How many girls choose cotton dress world when they could have satins and lace and stand by her man, never once letting shame touch her face? How many hearts could live through all We've known and still not be cold. True love travels on a gravel road. Neither track was selected as a single, but the album shipped over 250,000 units upon release and went gold in less than a year. From Elvis in Memphis came out the same month Charlie Pride released All I Have to Offer You Is Me. It wasn't his first hit. Charlie's previous seven singles were all top tens, beginning with Just Between You and Me in 1966. But it was his first number one, and the first of four number ones written by Dallas Frazier and Doodle Owens. The second was Charlie's next single, I'm So Afraid of Losing You Again. Following two more number one records, Charlie released another Fraser Owens song, I Can't Believe That You've Stopped Loving Me, featuring a prominent steel guitar part from Lloyd Green. How can anything so real become a dream? I can't believe that you've stopped loving me. This record went number one in 1970. Also in 1970, Dallas Frazier released his third album. After his second LP was largely ignored, Capitol did release a few more singles. Everybody Ought to Sing a Song in 1967 was the closest thing he ever had to a country hit, charting at number 28. I traveled down the road and I got real thirsty. I pulled in a station to get me a Coke Coke. Put my dime in, pulled down the handle, but the Coke machine was broke, broke, broke. Everybody ought to sing a song. George Jones and Melba Montgomery covered it as an album track the same year. Everybody ought to sing a song. Sing to the world about something that's gone wrong. Go on strike about something that you don't like. Everybody ought to sing a song. Dallas's next three singles came close to making the country top 40, but none of them did. 
I Hope I Like Mexico Blues, written with Doodle Owens, is a great song title, and the record follows all the way through. But it evidently fell through the cracks at Country Radio. I've never found a copy of Dallas's The Conspiracy of Homer Jones. But Bobby Gentry must have gotten her hands on one because she cut the song in 1969. Then one day the high sheriff came, told Homer that there'd been many complaints about the disappearance of the hired hand and Homer's missus. With total confusion on the sheriff's face, he took one last look and left Homer's place. And Homer just grinned and hummed and went about his business. Things that the county thought they knew were the things they knew that they couldn't prove. And the gossiping tongues of the curious grew much longer. They kept looking for something they couldn't find, cause the structure of their simple minds couldn't cope with the intellectual thoughts of Homer. Though it went unreleased until the Girl from Chickasaw County box set came out about a year after her episode in season one. With his singles receiving very little attention, Capitol released Dallas from his contract and he moved over to RCA for his third album, Singing My Songs. As you'd guess from the title, the idea was for Dallas to record versions of the big hits he'd written for other artists. Since most of those were country hits, this album marks his jump back over to the country side of the genre fence, with plenty of Nashville sound strings and steel guitar in the arrangements. Beginning with the lead-off track, There Goes My Everything. There goes my reason for There goes the one of my dreams there goes my only possession. There goes my everything. This album includes two of the hits he and Doodle Owens wrote for Charlie Pride. First, all I have to offer you is me. There'll be no mansions waiting on the hill with crystal. Chandeliers, and there'll be no fancy clothes for you to wear. Everything I have is standing here in front of you to see. Then I'm so afraid of losing you again. Then I tremble at the thought of giving in. Because I know how much it costs to love you. And I'm so afraid 
of losing you again. The year before, Lord Is That Me was a minor hit for Jack Green, and it's prescient to hear Dallas take on this subject matter since he'd soon begin studying to become a preacher. Dallas wrote Lord Is That Me with Whitey Schaefer, who got his start in Nashville being underpaid by Ray Baker at Bluecrest, writing with Dallas, Doodle Owens, and on his own. Many of you have heard George Jones sing Whitey's song, Between My House and Town. You finally got the nerve to tell me You no longer want me hanging around I knew all along it would have happened So there's this a new place, darling The second track on Jones' If My Heart Had Windows LP, and Dallas Frazier recorded If My Heart Had Windows on his third album. As his live performances of the song usually begin with a dedication to his wife, it's worth mentioning here that Sharon was always the inspiration for Dallas's true love songs. By your side, I'll stay till we're old and gray, reminiscing. Young moments we knew If my heart had windows You'd see a heart full of love just As many great recordings as there are of Son of Hickory Holler's Tramp, the arrangement on Dallas's version stands apart from the crowd. Scarlet lamp And late at night A hand would knock And there would stand a stranger Yes, I'm the son Of Hickory And the arrangement for his cut Of Will You Visit Me on Sundays Leans heavier on the strings than most Will you visit 
When Dallas recorded California Cotton Field, written with Peanut Montgomery, he had every reason to assume it would be a hit record by the time this album came out. Because Merle Haggard put it to tape a few months earlier, in April 1969. My drifting memory goes back to the spring of 43. When I was just a child in mama's arms My daddy plowed the ground and prayed Someday he could leave This rundown mortgage Oklahoma farm but then, for whatever reason, probably Oki from Muskogee coming out in the fall of 69 and changing the trajectory of his entire career, Merle's version of California Cottonfield was shelved until 1971, making the Dallas Frazier recording the first to be released. Then one night I heard my daddy saying to my mama that he finally saved enough for us to go. California was his dream of paradise for he had seen pictures in magazines that told him so. California cotton fields where labor camps were full of worried men with broken dreams. The only other songs on this album which weren't already hits for other artists were She Wants to Be Good, Sweetheart Don't Throw Your Love Away, and I Just Got Tired of Being Poor. I'd suggest the first verse of this last one may have been written from autobiographical experience, but I would never accuse Dallas Frazier of stealing candy when he was a little boy. My life of trouble goes back to the candy That I stole from Jesse Walker's country store a penny separated me from choosing sides with honesty. I just got tired of being poor. It's possible Dallas did I Just Got Tired of Being Poor because here, too, he had reason to believe it would be a hit by the time his album came out, as George Jones recorded the song in 1969. I remember Willie Jackson laughing and they're talking about the ragged clothes I wore That's when Willie got a taste of all my knuckles in his face I just got tired of being poor Some folks eat their supper off of silver And the only world they'll ever know is wealth But I can't blame the rich folks for these big tall walls this prison is the doings of myself. It went unreleased until 1972, after Jones moved to Epic and Musicor started issuing whatever they had in the vault. In 1971, the only new hit Dallas wrote with Doodle Owens was Touching Home. Cause today I can feel it 
a top five country record for Jerry Lee Lewis. However, 1971 was still a very lucrative year for Dallas Frazier because it's the year Elvis Presley had a top 10 country record with There Goes My Everything. Though it was initially a flop that only began selling after Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was a hit the following year, David Bowie's Hunky Dory came out in 1971 and included Life on Mars, now one of his most well-known songs, containing a direct reference to Frazier's Alley Oop. She could spit in the eyes of Nineteen seventy-one was also the year RCA released their second and final Dallas Frazier LP. This time, he recorded a few of his hits written for other artists, like the Jerry Lee Lewis record "Touching Home." Where did they go, Lord? Charted in the pop top forty as an Elvis Presley B-side earlier in the year. I cry out my questions. And Where Is My Castle just missed the country top 10 for Connie Smith in 1970. More than once I cried because impatience let me down. I could see the gold before the gold was found. And every time I trusted love to lead me by the hand. It circled back and left me where I stand. Where is my castle? Where is my destiny? But My Baby Packed Up My Mind and Left Me wasn't a rehash of the previous LP's concept and features many more original recordings, like the title track. I didn't hear the engines of a jet plane. I didn't hear the whistle of a train I didn't hear the taxi driver knocking on my door I didn't hear her walking across the floor But my baby Packed up my mind and then she left me And the jazzy Big Mabel Murphy Hey, I've been late one rain when 
yet another Dallas Frazier single, which barely missed the country top 40. In 1972, Connie Smith became the second country artist to release an entire album of Dallas Frazier compositions, called If It Ain't Love and Other Great Dallas Frazier Songs. Other than Where Is My Castle, Dallas also wrote Connie's top 10 1968 record, Runaway Little Tears, and with Doodle Owens, her top 5 1972 record, Just For What I Am. In total, Connie Smith recorded somewhere around 70 songs written by or with Dallas, which is even more than George Jones. While the songs and arrangements on her Dallas Frazier LP are not as uniformly excellent as Jones' entry to this small field, there's a reason Jones often said Connie Smith had the best voice of any woman in country music, and her album does have several high points. The title track and lead single went top 10 country because it's one of the greatest don't mess with my body if you don't want my heart numbers in the genre. Living Without You and Don't Tell Him That I'm Still Crying are two of Dallas's best heartbroken weepers. Before you left, I set myself some crying time aside. I knew that getting over you would take my heart some time. But love won't fade or slip away to please my foolish pride. Because my heart overrules my mind. Don't tell him that I'm still. Was more than I could stand. And Connie hooks both all the way home. Speaking of home, Bringing It Home is one of three songs on the album to feature Dallas as a guest vocalist. You'll note Christianity becoming an increasingly common theme in his writing, and perhaps not coincidentally, Connie Smith's albums also began featuring more gospel material in this period. This rocky old road This old heart of mine Is hurting from a heavy load Only Jesus knows The way my heart went wrong But the Lord, He knows I'm about to bring it on home Whoa, I'm bringing it Yes, I'm bringing it
1973, Stoney Edwards had a small country hit with Hank and Lefty Raised My Country's Soul. Written by Dallas Frazier and Doodle Owens to be the kind of lionizing anthem you'd expect from the title. The words country soul have often been interpreted as a sly reference to the country soul subgenre of music, but anyone who's actually listened to it knows this is a misunderstanding. Head ahead in 1941, when I was just about 10 years old, we would listen to Hank and Lefty on the radio. Why don't you love me like you used to do? And just look what thoughts will do. Old Hank and Lefty raise my country soul. Learn how to sing and shuffle my shoes. Listen and Hank sang the lustig blues. As you can hear, he was hardcore country through and through. In the United States in the 1970s, Stoney Edwards' Irish, Black, and American Indian genealogy tracked as simply Black. Stoney once told Peter Guralnik, quote, I was never really accepted by any race. Sometimes I wished I was black as a skillet or white as a damned sheet, but the way I am, it's always been a motherfucker. After Hank and Lefty Raised My Country's Soul came out and made at least enough noise for everyone in Nashville who actually gave a shit about country music to pay attention, Stoney happened to find himself in the same bar as Lefty Frizzell one night. Lefty was only two years away from successfully drinking himself to death, and on this night, when someone played Hank and Lefty Raise My Country's Soul on the jukebox, Lefty was so drunk he couldn't hold back the tears from hearing the song. And so drunk he didn't have a clue who he was talking to when Stoney Edwards walked up to introduce himself as the singer. After spending the past decade or so feeling like the industry and country music fans forgot about him and moved on, Lefty was blown away by the tribute to him. But then he expressed some kind of frustration over the record being by a black artist. Only Lefty used the N-word. Stoney just shook his hand and walked away. In late 1972, Dallas Frazier and Peanut Montgomery wrote What's Your Mama's Name, Child? And Bobby Bear was the first artist to record it. Forty-some-odd years ago, a young man came to Memphis Asking about a rose that used to blossom in his world People never took the time to mind the young man's questions Till one day they heard him ask a little green-eyed girl What's your mama's name, child? What's your mama's name? Does she ever talk about a place called New Orleans? But Tanya Tucker's version of the song came out first in February 1973. What's your mama's name, child? What's your mama's name? This was Tanya's first number one record and the title track of her second album, which also included a killer version of California Cotton Fields. California Cotton Fields. 
broken dreams California cotton fields Was as close to wealth as daddy ever came Later in 1973, Jeannie C. Riley was the first artist to release a version of The Baptism of Jesse Taylor, though only as an album track. From the local taverns, there'll be a slack in business, cause Jesse's drinking came before the groceries and the rent. Among the local women, there'll be a slack in cheating, cause Jesse won't be stepping out again. By the time he wrote this song with Whitey Schaefer, Dallas was at least thinking about becoming a preacher, if not already studying in earnest. Whitey's mom had him singing gospel music back in Texas when he was only six years old, and this background is probably why Dallas chose to write so many Christian-themed songs with him in this period. The same month Jeannie C. Riley's album came out, Johnny Russell released The Baptism of Jesse Taylor as a single. The scars on Jesse's knuckles were more than just respected. The county courthouse records tells all there is to tell. The pockets of the gamblers will soon miss Jesse's money. And the black eye of the law will soon be well. And it hit number 14 on the country chart. Within months, the song was recorded by George Jones. Among the local taverns, there'll be a slack in business. Cause Jesse's drinking came before the groceries and the rent. Tanya Tucker. Among the and the Oak Ridge Boys. Jesse won't be stepping out again. They baptized Jesse Taylor in Cedar Creek last Sunday. Jesus gained a soul and Satan lost a good ride on. The Oak Ridge Boys cut was not a commercial hit, but it did win a Grammy Award for Best Gospel Performance. By 1974, Dallas's output had significantly slowed, as he'd begun to seriously consider getting out of the music business. His only hit of the year was another number one for Charlie Pride, again written with Doodle Owens, Then Who Am I? If he's the one that's always on your mind The only one whose love can satisfy If he's the one that keeps your heart alive And who am I? Who am I? Who am I? 
This is a heartbroken love song, but the question in the title is basically what Dallas was asking himself more and more often. Was he a good Christian husband and father, or was he an alcoholic who wrote songs about drinking and cheating? Was it even possible to serve the Lord while working in secular country music, let alone participating in the barroom culture where so many gears of the business were turned? He wasn't so sure. Released in 1974, Champagne Ladies and Blue Ribbon Babies by Dallas Frazier and Doodle Owens was one of Ferlin Husky's final charting singles. In 1975, Mo Bandy nearly had a top 10 hit with Don't Anyone Make Love at Home Anymore, written by Dallas Frazier. Don't anyone make love at home anymore Does everyone possess the yearn to cheat? Don't anyone make love at home anymore Has everyone become a fool like me? In 1976, his spiritual struggle having only grown more intense, Dallas decided to take a one-year break from the industry, thus entering a 30-year period during which he was, quote, practically retired. Even being inducted to the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1976 wasn't enough to keep him in the business. However, as previously mentioned, if they're good enough, a writer's songs don't stop working just because he does. In December 1976, Johnny Russell released The Son of Hickory Holler's Tramp as a single. Oh, the path was deep and wide from footsteps leading to our cabin. Above the door that burned the scarlet lamp. And late at night, a hand would knock and there would stand a stranger. While Johnny's record would eventually hit the country top 40, most people who know this song know it from Kenny Rogers' platinum-selling second solo album, his first major success after leaving the first edition. When daddy left and destitution came upon our family Not one neighbor volunteered to give a helping so let them gossip all they want She loved us and she raised us The proof is standing here for me The rest of the decade was a relatively quiet time for Dallas Frazier compositions. At some point in the middle of the 70s, bootleggers started passing around a more complete collection of Bob Dylan's late 60s basement recordings with the band, and everyone got to hear his take on Dallas Frazier's Baby Ain't That Fine.
That this tape even exists means Dylan must have heard either the Melba Montgomery and Gene Pitney version or the Dallas Frazier version, as those are the only two prior recordings of the song from anyone other than some guy in Iowa named Bobby Hankins who I doubt Dylan ever heard of. As the 70s came to an end, some strange cosmic alignment brought three different Dallas Frazier songs off of old tapes and to the top of the charts within a two-year period. The first version of Beneath Still Waters to See the Light of Day was by Carl Vaughn in October of 1968. Beneath still waters There's a strong undertow the surface won't tell you what the deep water knows darling I'm saying I know something's wrong but George Jones was the first person to record the song a full year earlier in September 1967. Beneath still waters Your love is gone Even a fool could see That you Which is significant because the melody of Beneath Still Waters bears a strong resemblance to Walk Through This World With Me, Jones' big number one hit from earlier in the year. His cut of Beneath Still Waters was never released as a single. The way Emmylou Harris heard the song was through that circle of friends who made their own personal George Jones' greatest hits collections. She put Beneath Still Waters on her 1979 album, Blue Kentucky Girl. When it was released as a single in January 1980, it went number one country. A little over a year later, in March 1981, the Oak Ridge Boys released Elvira as a single. It went number one country, number five pop, won their fifth Grammy Award, won single of the year at the CMAs, and sold over two million copies, despite them ruining the entire thing by failing to sing My Heart's on Fire for Elvira the way Dallas did on the original recording. Okay, I'm only kidding, but it is kind of strange the Oak Ridge Boys didn't sing Fyra because they picked up the song from Rodney Crowell's 1978 version, which has a slower tempo that makes it even more blatant when he leans all the way into the Fyra. Elvira. Elvira. 
Knowing Rodney's dedication to studying the history of his craft, it's pretty likely he got the song from Dallas Frazier's original cut, rather than the 1970 album version by the first edition. But for those keeping score at home, yes, Kenny Rogers did choose to sing Fyra like Dallas. Six months after the Oak Ridge Boys released the biggest record of their career, Gene Watson released the biggest record of his career, 14 Carat Mind, written by Dallas Frazier and Larry Lee Favorite. Maybe Emmylou Harris taking Beneath Still Waters to number one made Dallas want to write some more songs, or perhaps he figured there was a way to sneak anti-materialism messages into secular music the way he and Larry did on 14 Carat Mind. But Dallas did come out of retirement to write this song and sing on the demo tape. He was still using an old reel-to-reel recording unit to make his demos, so Gene Watson almost didn't even listen to it when going through a box of cassettes. But it was the last thing in the box, and he hadn't heard anything he liked so far, so Gene went and hooked up an old reel-to-reel player and listened to the tape. He knew he was going to do the song before Dallas was even all the way through the first verse, and long before Pig Robbins played one of the greatest piano hooks ever on the session. The cabin that I built in West Virginia Was not enough to keep you satisfied a man that's got a sawmill occupation can't afford to feed a rich girl's appetite. This was Gene Watson's only number one record. Wonder if you're still with Willie Jackson. Sometimes I wonder if he's still alive. Oh, Willie, he gave up his wife and children just to satisfy your but it didn't bring Dallas all the way back to the business, and neither did Patti Loveless having her first top 10 record with If My Heart Had Windows in During his 30-year retirement, Dallas did serve as a minister at various times. His longest run at one pulpit was from 1999 to 2006, as the pastor of a non-denominational church in White House, Tennessee, outside Nashville. After stepping down from this role in 06, Dallas said he felt the Lord finally telling him it was okay to work in country music, that it didn't have to be one or the other and he got back into giving occasional performances, like his 2009 appearance on The Marty Stewart Show. This next man is responsible for some of the greatest country songs ever written. Check some of these titles, Superlatives. Okay. Mohair Sam. Oh, yeah. Alley Oop. Woo. If It Ain't Love. Look out. 
leave it alone. The baptism of Jesse Taylor, where is my castle? Mm. There goes my everything, oh my Elvira, all I have to <laughs> offer you is me, and if my heart had windows. You get the idea? We got great, great songwriting royalty with us. A member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the legendary Dallas Fraser. For everyone who doesn't know, in 1997, Marty Stewart married Connie Smith who I'm pretty sure has recorded more Dallas Frazier songs than anyone on the planet. So it's safe to assume Marty was pretty stoked about having Dallas as a guest on his show. I still recall the morning that I met you Go ahead, Dallas! Standing out in front of Wilson's Five and Dime Staring through the window at the jewelry Hungry for the things you couldn't buy Dallas Frazier still pops up here and there to sing some of his songs every now and then. As of this recording, his most recent album is 2011's appropriately titled Writing and Singing Again. They call her the carousel girl. Hey, mister, take a look. Do you like what you see? If you came to town to make the rounds, then make a round with me. If the offer is right, I'll be yours for the night. They call me the carousel girl. Thank you for listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. Every episode is written and produced by me, Tyler Mahan Co. There were a lot of songs clipped in this one. Even if it would be legal for me to play whole songs, doing that would make every episode four hours long, so I always try to clip the most representative segment or the segment most relevant to the point under discussion. As always, I encourage everyone who heard anything they liked to go listen to the full songs, because there's usually a lot more going on than shown here. More words, more melodies, more instrumentation, more of the story. To make it easy for you, every episode has a blog post on cocaineandrhinestones.com including a full list of all the songs, in the order they were heard, plus links to buy them if they are available online. I try to also find some relevant photos for each blog post, which seems especially important this season since I'm talking about so many things from medieval and early modern history. If my descriptions of bullfighting or chivalric tournaments or tilting at the ring weren't enough to put an image in your mind, then you can go to the website to see what some of these things look like. I should mention most of the photos pertaining to Dallas Frazier came from his official website, dallasfraziermusic.com. Naturally, anyone who enjoyed this episode should go spend some time poking around over there. While you're on my website, though, please swing by the support page to see the various ways you can help me keep making more seasons of this show. For a long time, the only way to contribute was Patreon, and that's still my preferred method because it's the most consistent. But in order to remain independent, I've added several more options to support the podcast. 
from official merchandise to a wish list of research materials to a simple PayPal account. Those of you contributing are the only reason I'm able to do this, and I sincerely appreciate each of you. This was mostly a really fun episode to make. It's pretty evident I'm a huge Dallas Frazier fan, as just about anyone who loves music would have to be. Any of the songwriters included in those Patreon polls would have fit right into what I'm doing here, but I was glad when Dallas Frazier won, because his story is such a perfect piece of contrast to the main arc of this season. Here's a man who questioned whether the industry and culture built around creativity such as his was actually good for his health and happiness, or that of his loved ones. Walked away for several decades and only came back on his own terms. That's admirable and rare. I should say it's important to me that listeners enjoy the show the first time through. Some of you only listen once, and if you're still listening, that means you've accepted there will be moments in this show where you're not really sure why I'm talking about something. Then that thing comes back around later, and it makes sense. However, I'm also aware this is a podcast most fans are going to listen to multiple times. So I try to create a similar experience across the whole season for repeat listeners. I get the feeling nearly everyone is up to speed on what's happening here, but if anyone out there is still confused regarding, say, why I talked so much about bullfighting, this would be a great point to go back and start the season over from the beginning. You could think of this Dallas Frazier episode as a divider between Act 1 and Act 2. I'm not done answering all the questions I've raised, and all these threads will continue popping out through the final episode of the season. But there are a lot of answers waiting to be found in a second listen through these first eight episodes. When the podcast returns in a couple weeks, we're going to get the ball rolling on Act 2, which means bringing Tammy Wynette to center stage. These liner notes will be brief. I don't have any single source on medieval tournaments or jousting or chivalry. One of the things you'll hear through the rest of the season, or even if you started over from the beginning, is how the echoes of this culture reverberated through the entirety of 20th century country music. Like the intro on Pinball, this is just a bunch of stuff I've been paying attention to my whole life. T.H. White's The Once and Future King was one of the first books I became obsessed with as a child, so maybe that gave me some sort of radar to notice those themes popping up in the lyrics of country songs, or, you know, the first real recording studio in Nashville naming itself Castle, etc. I did do my best to fact-check everything before saying it, but there are no primary sources I can give that contain all of that information. There are a few sources I could share for those of you who took a particular interest in this intro, but it would be a pretty big spoiler to do that right now and makes more sense to do it later when those sources become more relevant. One thing to clarify, I can see how some people may have thought they heard me say Miguel de Cervantes was the first and last person to criticize the culture of chivalric knighthood and he single-handedly ended it. That is not what I said because that's obviously not what happened. Don Quixote was simply the final nail in the coffin, a knockout punch from which there was no chance of recovery. As for sources on Dallas Frazier, there's never been a book about him and only a handful of interviews over the years. I found probably fewer than 20. The most significant sources of information were the interviews with Bronson'sMusic.com and the Tennessean mentioned in the episode, as well as an interview by Ed Hurt for Furious.com the website of The Perfect Sound Forever online magazine. Dallas has also done at least one interview at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum, which you can watch on their website. 
Other than that, this episode was put together over a lifetime of reading the backs of country albums, the hours I spent in the archives at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum, and the main reference books on the library page of cocaineandrhinestones.com. Okay, I gotta get out of here, but come back in two weeks to meet Virginia Wynette Pugh and hear how she became Tammy Wynette. Do not ask me, love, to linger, for you know not what you say. When my beauty calls, my sweetheart's voice is vain. But your heart need not be sighing, if I'm not among the dying, I'll be with you when the roses bloom again. When the roses bloom again beside the river, and the robin redbreast sings his sweet refrain. As in days of all anxiety, I'll be with you, sweetheart mine. I'll be with you when the roses bloom again.